From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The Department of Veterans Affairs is hiring new frontline health care workers in as soon as three days because of the pandemic. Jessica Bongiorni, Chief for Human Capital Management at the Veterans Health Administration, says the agency will see how it can use its pandemic process to reform hiring permanently. GovExec reports the average hiring time at VHA is down from 94 days to 10 to 12 days. The General Services Administration's canceling the $15 billion Alliant II small business contract. That decision comes just a few days after GSA raised the roof on the STARS II government-wide acquisition contract from $15 billion to $22 billion. FedScoop reports the agency says it's, quote, planning a new approach for small business GWACs. The USS Fitzgerald is back in its home port of San Diego after two and a half years in dry dock in Mississippi for repairs. The Fitzgerald collided with a Philippine container ship in June of 2017. Seven sailors died in the accident. USNI News reports the Navy will keep the Fitzgerald in San Diego instead of returning it to its assignment with the 7th Fleet. A new executive order instructs the Office of Personnel Management and agencies to take another look at job qualifications and prioritize skill over education. OPM only has six months to review and implement the new standards. Jeff Neal is former Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security. He's chairman at the National Academy of Public Administration, writing uh, at his blog, ChiefHRO.com, about the executive order. Jeff, welcome. It's good to talk to you. You write uh, on your blog that this EO overall is a good idea. Why do you think there's potential here, Jeff? Well, I, th I think there's potential for a couple of reasons. Uh, you know, the, the EO has a couple of key points. One is it's telling agencies not to use education as a qualification requirement for a job unless uh, there's actually a, a, a legal reason to do it. Uh, and I think they'll find there may be some other reasons like certifications in states. So uh, they want to eliminate degree requirements where they're not really necessary. And I think that's a good idea because it does screen out some people who might otherwise be qualified, you know, particularly, for, you know, say, for an IT job like a computer programmer. Most of us have probably met 14-year-old you know, programmers who could out-program somebody with a PhD. Uh, the other thing that's the most important, I think, is that it, it they're asking agencies, they're telling agencies to stop using self-assessment questionnaires as the only way of assessing a candidate. And I don't know if you've taken a look at some of these questionnaires that agencies are using, but, but they're really, um, I hate to use the word, but really they're crap. You know, they, they ask people to say, you know, how well do you know how to do so-and-so? And they get five answers from I don't know anything to I'm an expert. And people just lie on those things. And so what they're asking people to do is use uh, assessments beyond those self-assessment questionnaires so you can actually figure out whether or not somebody is qualified to do the darn job. And I think that if agencies do it, I think will make a massive difference. It's a really important change. And that I think is fantastic. I had never seen what one of these questionnaires actually looks like until uh, Nicola Grisco of Federal News Network um, in the last week put up a screenshot of what they look like. Jeff, this is frightening. 
to me as a taxpayer to think that this is the way that managers have to make decisions. Because you're exactly right. Review, here's question, one of the questions that she screenshotted. Review actions, incoming and outgoing correspondence, tasks and suspense, and provide comments. And, and another one, another skill assessment you have to do yourself. Develop and conduct briefings to management and or higher headquarters regarding the fielding and integration of new systems. Well, first of all, those two job qualifications are gobbledygook. And then somebody's got to say on that scale of one to five that you just laid out whether they're qualified to do it. I mean, if, if getting rid of this is, is the issue, hallelujah, it seems to me. Am I reading this wrong? Is there something I'm missing, Jeff? Oh, oh no, you are reading it exactly right. You know, what, what these things are is garbage. They are, they're, they're kind of a lazy way of doing a questionnaire. You take a few things that you might find in job description, and then you you um, put this same five-point scale on them from I know nothing to I know everything, and that's it. It's it, they're, they're, You can write one of these questionnaires in a few minutes. So a lot of agencies like them for that reason, but, but they're, they're just garbage. And you know, Nicole and I talked about that last week. I, I gave her some, some examples of these questionnaires. You know how long it took me to find one that was one of the bad ones? First one I looked at. I would have Second said five seconds. Just as bad. Yeah, I mean, just go look at any job on USA Jobs, and you're almost certainly going to find this kind of garbage. And and it's no wonder hiring managers get lists of applicants. You know, one of these things that had a question that was attending meetings. You know, I'm an expert at it. I don't know anything yeah. about attending meetings. I'm an meetings. expert at attending meetings. Yeah, and, and you know, well, there's a lot of nuance to attending meetings. You have to decide when you get to the room if you push the door or pull the right. door. That's a real hard thing for some folks. You know, it's it's just it's you know, do you sit on the left side of the table or the right side of the table, or maybe sit up against the wall? So, you know, at least we get to find out if somebody's an expert at attending meetings. Uh, so it's really they're really just garbage questionnaires. They don't they don't do what they're supposed to do. What they're supposed to do is separate. Good candidates from not good candidates, and they're well-qualified people from very well from from not well-qualified, and it's supposed to predict how well somebody can perform on the job, and these things just don't. All right, we have less than a minute left, Jeff. You write in your piece, your most recent blog post, which I commend to everybody at chiefhro.com, that getting this done in 120 days, the way that OPM is, has to, according to the EO, is not likely. Why not? Doing new new qualification standards or classification standards typically takes OPM many, many months, sometimes several years. Although this is not a massive change, they're going to need to look at how it affects other things on qualifications for the jobs. And they really are not resourced in their policy areas to do this kind of massive review of what is literally probably thousands of pages of documents. I just don't think they have the resources to do it in four months. That's a, it's a, a bit of a heavy lift for an agency that's lightly staffed in that area. Um, 30 seconds. Is this a problem because of the OPM being under-resourced over the years? Is this a merger issue or neither? Uh, the problem is OPM has been under-resourced. They have 3,000 people and probably only a couple hundred of them do policy work. So they don't have enough people who do the actual core mission of the agency. and that, That's the real problem here. They need more money. Congress should give them more, and the president should, should agree to that. Jeff Neal, thanks very much, as always.
Delighted to be here. Straight ahead on Government Matters, reopening the government to process taxes on time. How the IRS will open safely and work to get the job done. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Welcome back. The Internal Revenue Service says it'll be back up to full staffing by this year's tax day, July 15th. But the commissioner of the IRS, Charles Reddick, says full strength doesn't mean everyone's in the office. Danny Werfel's managing director and partner at Boston Consulting Group, former acting commissioner of the IRS. Danny, thanks very much for coming on. What does that mean exactly? What does a, a workforce at full strength at the IRS, but not necessarily all in the office, look like in your view? Well, I think first thing that, that you have to understand is, is why do you have to bring IRS employees back as the new July 15th uh, tax deadline approaches? And that's because um, while many returns are filed electronically and therefore there's a, uh, an ability to do some of that work remotely, still we have returns that are filed in, pap uh, in paper form and therefore it does require uh, some IRS employees to be on site uh, looking at those paper forms and, and processing them a little bit differently. In terms of what it means to have to have full strength, doesn't necessarily mean that you bring the entire workforce of processors and IRS agents and experts back in. You can bring uh, enough people back to to deal with the paperwork that may have piled up uh, during the pandemic. You can rotate people in and out in order to make sure that you're not filling offices uh, and maintaining the, uh, the required social distancing. So I think full workforce participation on site will be defined differently going forward than it was 2019 going backwards. In what ways will that be different? And in what ways will that difference potentially result in something that sticks beyond the coronavirus, Danny, do you think? Well, I think there's a lot, like this is obviously a situation that we haven't encountered. And there's a, you know, a real opportunity and challenge in how, uh, how government employers are going to work on site going forward. And we have to figure this out and there'll be some, some trial and error. But from what I understand, there's a lot of opportunity to, to rotate people in in shifts to look at our space requirements and figure out how to right-size workforce into spaces, uh, figure out you know what is essential, more, more on the essential end of the spectrum to have people on-site and co-located. For example, if there's stuff coming in, physical paper that's coming into uh, to an organization, you may need people on-site for that. If there's certain security requirements that you don't want to do things virtually but need to be on site in a in a more protected uh, area in order to either have conversations or conduct business electronically. So what we'll need to do as a government is build that spectrum, figure out where there's more essential on-site activities versus less essential, and then start moving people into the on-site uh, facilities, but in a way that allows them to social distance and to meet local guidelines and that could mean shifts i'm on i'm on site monday wednesday and friday not tuesday 30. i'm on in the mornings 
but not in the afternoon. And the logistics of the commute, all of that will need to be worked out. And I would imagine the IRS can be a learning moment for the rest of government as they pilot bringing on people in shifts. We're going to learn a lot. And I think the IRS employees, you know, the ones that I worked with, you know, it's often they're, they wear their, their, their responsibilities to tax administration with a huge badge of honor. Um, and, um, and I would imagine many of them are, uh, would, would look at the opportunity to, to set an example for the rest of the government and have the government learn from them as something that's positive. Well, and the main thing I think that will make a big difference, Danny, is just the fact that the IRS, by necessity, because of all of the reasons that you just described, was one of the first agencies to start talking about, thinking about, and then actually bring people back. So it strikes me that that gives them kind of a pioneering position here. I mean, I, last week I had to send a little love note to the IRS myself. Somebody in, I think, Kansas City has to actually open that envelope, take the check out, and do something with it. So the, there has been a physical presence necessary there, um, I imagine, throughout the coronavirus, and um, it, it gives them an opportunity to really lay the groundwork for other agencies, doesn't it? It does. And one thing that this is such a complicated question that the whole world, uh, uh, but just specific to the United States and organizations and government organizations and commercial organizations are dealing with the complexities of bringing people back. How do you do so in a safe way? How do you listen to the voice of your employees? Some of them have uh, underlying conditions. Some of them have are caring for family members. Um, there are you know, certain accommodations that will need to be made and fairness and equity issues. It'll be really, really important to make sure that the lines of communication are open, that we're considering all the various factors. If there are people that are ready to come back and enthusiastic to come back and fit into the, you know, kind of the required work to do on site, great. Let's let's pave that path, make sure there's the right PPE on site and the right policies and, and get them set up safely. But if there are people in your workforce that uh, for all for controlling for all else should be on site given the requirements, but have issues with respect to whether they can be on site due to some of these health concerns. We need to create a dialogue for how to accommodate those individuals and make sure we're approaching it uh, thoughtfully. Danny Werfel, thanks as always. It's great to see you. My pleasure, Francis. Up next, leveraging new technology to predict the next coronavirus. Straight ahead on Government Matters, how anticipatory intelligence can help the government get ahead of the curve. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. We'll be right back. More than 130,000 people in the United States have died from the coronavirus pandemic so far. Getting ahead of the next public health emergency could result from embracing new predictive technology like anticipatory intelligence. Reggie Brothers is chief executive officer of New Wave Solutions, former undersecretary of science and technology at the Department of Homeland Security. Reggie, it's good to see you again. What does this concept mean? I have started to see it pop up, but it's something I'm not familiar with. What's anticipatory intelligence? Sure. So anticipatory intelligence is trying to solve a particular set of problems. Uh, it's really trying to reduce the uncertainty that decision makers have when trying to make decisions, whether it be about pandemics, national security, national defense, these kinds of things. 
Um, the way it reduces that uncertainty, Francis, is it can come up with, it can either try to forecast discrete events, or it can try to um, develop hypotheses, potential hypotheses. And then by developing these hypotheses, the decision maker can then ask the what if question. Right? So let's say, for example, something happens, whether it be an extreme weather event, a natural or man-made disaster. Uh, these types of technologies can come up with hypotheses that could happen. And then, get, and then the decision maker can then explore, okay, if I, make, if I choose this course of action, what happens? So we could take a weather event, let's take a hurricane. And as we know that um, there are a number of different models for modeling hurricanes. And it's not till they get closer that we start converging on which model starts to make the most sense. Uh, these types of models can then help the decision maker understand this, that depending on which hypothesis is correct, what course of action they should take regarding where they should pre-deploy equipment, personnel, these kinds of things. Is this an, a new technology? Is it a, a merger of technologies that already exist? For example, it sounds like potentially it could be just a matter of writing certain types of algorithms for artificial intelligence technology that already exists, or it might be something completely altogether different. Which, which are we looking at here, Reggie? No, and, and, and you're right, on Francis, we've talked about artificial intelligence before. It is a type of artificial intelligence. It's using machine learning just like the other artificial intelligence technology we've spoken about. Um, it uses a lot of data, um, and it uses data from a variety of different sources. So for example, um, IARPA, the Intelligence Advanced Research Projects Agency, had a forecasting challenge a number of years ago. And the team that won that challenge um, was actually able to predict um, the, the outbreak of certain diseases by looking at kind of an unconventional data source. They actually looked at online restaurant reservations and they found that that was a predictor for disease outbreaks. So one of the big questions in this whole space is, what data do you look at? And then when you look at that data, how do you fine tune the machine learning algorithms to give you the best, the best in class types of predictions? So that data source has been the entire kind of difficulty that agencies have run across when it comes to using artificial intelligence. How clean is the data that we have? How reliable is the data that we have? Are the data quality standards for anticipatory, I can't even say it right, anticipatory intelligence different than they are for other types of AI uses, Reggie? Not necessarily, Francis. It, 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 it's, they're very similar, um, very similar techniques. Um, you're using ML, machine learning algorithms, just to, instead of predicting whether, it, in this case, you're trying to predict events. Um, you may be trying to predict other things with machine learning. Maybe, uh, you know, for example, some machine learning techniques are trying to predict whether a diagnosis for a medical clinician or something. This is trying to predict a particular type of event or a series of events. So it's the same technique. You're looking at lots of data from a variety of different sources. In this case, you're trying to train it based on past data. So let's say we're taking a pandemic. We might want to look at past pandemic information to try to understand how certain types of data can correlate with what we saw in past pandemics to what's going on now. So for example, right now we can look at, we can take the data that we're gaining now and then try to predict what might happen, happen in the future. So that's, that's how this is used. So your question about quality data is, is extremely important. As you know, it can take 70 to 90% of a data analyst's time to condition or clean this data. The same is true here. It, it's, a, it's a big challenge. We have a little bit less than uh, two minutes left, Reggie. Are the people skills 
or technological infrastructure that an agency should have in place to really leverage this the same as other types of technology or are there peculiarities there? So, you know what it is, it's I think every, right now predictive analytics is something that's really not being used effectively throughout. So I think any agency can use it. The agencies that are gonna be most effective with the Francis are those that are very data intensive. Those agencies that have access to a lot of data. So here's an example. Right now, um, the Department of Defense has really pushed out the JIG, Joint AI Center, has really pushed on using predictive maintenance as a big focus. So there you're using a lot of the data that you have for different uh, platforms to predict when you might have maintenance challenges, which then, then you get better efficiencies in how you're actually maintaining these, these types of platforms. But that's a data intensive kind of thing. So I think when you start talking about which agencies can use it, all of it can use it. The ones that have the best data, as you mentioned, the best quality data, are the ones that are going to be able to realize it in the near term. Reggie Brothers, thanks as always. Great to see you. Great to see you. Thanks so much. I'm Sharice Hanner. You can now keep your finger to the pulse of all things that matter to the business of government anytime, anywhere. Subscribe to the Government Matters Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, TuneIn, or simply ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters Podcast. For a quick fix of government news, follow us at Twitter at GovMattersTV. In tonight's event spotlight, NatSec 2020, Coronavirus and Beyond. The virtual conference is coming. You'll learn how COVID-19 will affect the business of government and the national security community and how it could restructure the four specialty areas that drive the business of government, personnel, acquisition, financial management, and information technology. It's available the week of July 13th from 1 to 2 in the afternoon. You can join the free webinar at fedinsider.com or tune in on WJLA 24-7 News. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.